In the meantime, we'll go to 1 Samuel chapter 7 in our Bibles. I apologize uh, that those didn't get handed out this morning, but we'll, we'll get that taken care of quickly. 1 Samuel chapter 7, we've uh, been in the book of 1 Samuel now for several weeks as we're trying to kind of lay the foundation for a study in the Kings. And, um, and so we've been uh, looking at the, the life of Samuel and uh, the judges. You weren't able to find it, buddy? Okay. Okay. All right. Very good. So we can get those handed out. That would be a blessing. All right. Very good. Well, we're going to pick it up here in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse number 1. It says, And the man of Kerjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. Now, if you remember, just a kind of a background on this, what had happened is a few chapters earlier, the, the Philistines had come to battle against Israel, and they basically, in their first battle, they were victorious, and Israel was beaten before them. And that, of course, uh, created within Israel this understanding, okay, God's not blessing us for some reason. So what they decided to do was to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle with them. And rather than uh, winning the battle, they, were, they lost that battle as well. And the Ark of the Covenant was taken from them. And uh, the Ark was brought to uh, the, the land of the Philistines. And there God was cursing the people of the Philistines uh, because they had the Ark of the Covenant. So they decided to send it back to Israel. And they sent it first to the, the, the place called Beth Shemesh. And uh, here the people received the Ark of the Covenant. But then uh, once they got it, they decided that they were going to look inside of it. And really not honoring the Lord with it. So they looked inside of the Ark and 50,000 people died that day. And uh, it was a, a tragic thing. So rather than repenting of that and getting things right, they said, we've got to get rid of this, just like the Philistines did. We've got to get rid of the ark. It's that hot potato that nobody wants, you know. And so they sent it on, and they sent it to the place called Kerjath Jerem. Well, when they bring it to Kerjath Jerem now, they have brought it to the house of Abinadab, and his son uh, was in charge of the ark of the covenant at that point. So the ark was moved and brought to Kerjath Jerem, Eliezer is now watching over it, and it says in verse number 2, And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kerjath Jerem, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So for twenty years, the ark of the covenant remained uh, in Kerjath Jerem, and basically... Uh, it was there kind of being stored there, but apparently not really, uh, you know, the tabernacle hadn't been set up or anything like that. It was just kind of there in Kerjath Jerem. And for 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant sat there. And the people of Israel, uh, they lamented. They were uh, weeping after the Lord. They were crying loudly. That, that's what the word lament literally means there, to wail. They were crying out to God. And it's kind of interesting to me when you really think about this that uh, 
that here the, the Ark of the Covenant has come back into the land of Israel, you would think there would be great rejoicing and celebrating because now we have this opportunity once again to set up the tabernacle and, and to really worship the Lord in the way that, that He is intended for us to worship Him. But they never did that. They just left it there for 20 years and, and there was kind of this... Uh, cloud over the nation for 20 years. They were uh, weeping after the Lord and, and, and nothing had really changed. Why? Because there was no real repentance there. Uh, the, the same heart that caused them to wander from the Lord, the same heart that caused them to view this Ark of the Covenant as nothing more really than a good luck charm, uh, it, it, it remains. That same spirit is remaining in Israel. They haven't turned their hearts back to the Lord yet. And so verse number 3, notice this, it says, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So here comes Samuel now, that prophet, and he, uh, what does he do? He calls them to repentance. He says to them, listen, uh, if you want things to be made right between you and God, here's what you need to do. You need to return unto the Lord with all your hearts. In other words, it's not enough for you just to have the Ark of the Covenant back in Israel. That hasn't changed anything. It hasn't fixed anything. You know, I've seen this too uh, sometimes where people maybe get away from the Lord for a while and then they, they think, well, you know, what I really need to do is I need to get back in church and I need to uh, get back serving the Lord and, and I'll do all of these things. And they, they do to some degree. They kind of feign it anyway. They'll start coming to church more and, and, and all of that. But things don't necessarily change in their relationship with God. And do you know why that is? Because our relationship with God doesn't start from the outside in, does it? It starts from the inside out. It's a heart issue. And if we really want things to be right with God, it's got to start inside, in our heart, where we're turning back to the Lord. And that's now what Samuel's saying. If you want things to be right, he says, return unto the Lord with all your hearts. And then he said, put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. In other words, if there is a genuine change in your heart, there's also going to be a change in your actions. You're, you're going to take these idols that have uh, created problems between you and God, you're going to get rid of them, you're going to put them away. By the way, that's what true repentance does, doesn't it? It, it? it starts inwardly, but it does change things outwardly as well. And, and so he says you need to put away these strange gods and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. You need to put God at, he needs to have first place in everything. And he is to be the only one that you serve. And then, and only then, was he going to bless you. And then he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So verse 4, then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. So you have this situation where now they've, they've gathered together to this place called Mizpah. And what did they do? They drew water and they poured it out. 
Now, I don't know exactly why they did that, what the significance is, but it seems to have something to do with kind of being symbolic of uh, either an expression that we are poured out before the Lord, that, you know, we've, are, that we've been wasted, or potentially that they're pouring out their hearts to the Lord. But basically, it was some kind of an expression that said, okay, Lord, we're done. Uh, you know, we, we just need you. And they confessed their sin before him, and they cried unto him. They fasted that day, and what did they confess? We have sinned against the Lord. And so now there's at least an outward uh, visual concept of repentance there. Only God knows the heart, but it does say that they did that. And then it says that, uh, Samuel judged Israel there. Samuel really was the last of the judges of that period. So verse number 7, When the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So here, here they are busy offering a sacrifice to the Lord, and, and uh, the uh, and, and, and trying to seek the Lord, and, and now their enemies come against them once again. Well, if you remember, Samuel just told them, if you'll turn to the Lord, he'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. But when they hear that the Philistines are coming, they're afraid. Why would that be? Well, it could be that there was just a lack of faith that God was able or was willing to deliver them. You know, all of us have those issues, right? A problem comes into our life, and... It's like we know that God can, but we're afraid that he won't, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and maybe that was the issue with them. Or maybe, just maybe, I've thought about this, it's possible that they knew that things weren't really what they should be in their heart before God. I don't know. But for whatever reason, now the Philistines are coming against them. And in verse number 8 it says, And the children of Israel said unto Samuel... Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Isn't it interesting that they, they asked Samuel to pray for them, but they weren't, really, they weren't really trusting that they could pray to God and that God would hear them. I think this is just a, a, an issue of unbelief in the hearts of the, of the Israelites. Now, I heard a preacher say one time, and the more I've thought on it, the more I, I think there's something to it. The preacher, preacher said, really all sin it has its root in unbelief. When we're not believing, when we're not trusting God, that's kind of the root of sin. And, and here, here's where they are. They're, obviously their hearts haven't been right with God for a long time. Things haven't been right in Israel, and, and now they've got a problem, and they're, even though God has told them that he's going to deliver them, uh, the only thing they can think is to ask Samuel, would you pray for us? Because they weren't confident that, <clears throat> that God would hear their prayers. I don't know if you've ever been in that place uh, where you've maybe felt like, boy, I really wish I had that guy praying for me. <laughs> you know, I need that person, because they know how to get a hold of God. But do you know that if you're a, a child of God, you have every bit as much power with him as any other of his people. You have the opportunity to go boldly under the throne of grace as his child uh, and, and receive the help that you need. And he's promised us that. 
And, and so, and that's even, I think it's, it's the reason that in James chapter 5, he makes that comparison with Elijah then calls him a man subject to like passions as we are. He was a, 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 just a normal guy who prayed to the Lord and the Lord heard him. And the idea is that you can do the same. Samuel didn't have to pray for the people. The people could have prayed for themselves. But they asked Samuel to pray, and so he did. And uh, verse number 9 says, And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And so right in the middle of trying to offer uh, this sacrifice, now the Philistines have, uh, have come against them, but the Lord thundered against them, the Bible says. And it, it, it messed them up. They, they were discomfited. That means that they were kind of scattered. They, their battle plan was disrupted. And ultimately, they were defeated. They were smitten before Israel. Well, what happened? Verse 11, that emboldened the people of Israel to pursue after the Philistines. And the men of Israel went out, to, out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came uh, under Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Lord gives them this victory, and Samuel sets up a stone, uh, kind of a memorial stone, if you will, and, and it was there uh, as a reminder. He, he called it Ebenezer. Uh, now that's not a word that you hear very frequently today. Uh, we do have it in at least one of our hymns that we sing. Anybody know a hymn where we have that word Ebenezer? Can't remember. What's that? No? That's right. Come thou fount. Yep. And I think it's the, th the third verse of the song. That's, that's how it starts, right? Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Well, the word Ebenezer means the Lord has helped us. And that's what the, even the song that we sing. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thine help I'm come. I, I'm able to come to the Lord because he has helped me. And that's what he, what, what he did here. He set up this stone and he used this word Ebenezer to remind the people of Israel that this was God's victory. That he had helped them. And really, folks, that's how we ought to live our lives, if you think about it. We ought to always be remembering what the Lord has done for us. And the victories that he's given to us, they're not our own, uh, but he has granted them. And so he sets this up and, uh, and to remind them that, that God had given them the victory. And then verse number 13, So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines... All the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house, 
And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. So this gives us kind of an insight into the, the remainder of the life of Samuel. Uh, he basically sets up his house in a place called Ramah, and uh, remains for the, for the remainder of his uh, ministry, he kind of travels in a, like a circuit-riding preacher around the, the land of Israel and, 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 and judges them. Uh, that would be that he would, would give them spiritual guidance, that he would uh, speak to their uh, disputes between one another, that he would just kind of uh, be a ruler in keeping peace uh, in Israel. So that's what he did. He gave counsel, uh, obviously would preach to them and tell them uh, of truth and promote righteousness and so on and so forth. So he, he maintained a home there in Ramah, but, and he built an altar to the Lord, but he throughout from year to year he would ride this circuit as well. So that's kind of the, the end of our passage that we're looking at today, but there's some things to consider about that. Uh, first of all, like I mentioned at the beginning, just because Israel possessed the ark of God, the symbol of his presence, that didn't automatically mean that God had the, his rightful place in their hearts, did it? Just because they had the ark of the covenant didn't mean that things were right between Israel and God. And, and I think there's something about that even for us to consider today. There might be outward symbols of God's presence in our lives. Uh, again, faithful church attendance would be one example. Or you've got a Bible on the, uh, you know, on the nightstand next to your bed or on the coffee table or whatever. You've got a plaque on your wall, you know, Joshua 24, 15. Uh, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But all these outward uh, symbols of God's presence in your life do not equate to having a right relationship with God, do they? They're really meaningless unless there is something in your heart that is truly seeking after the Lord. And, and so here they were, 20 years, they had that symbol of God's presence. But in reality, they didn't really have God's presence and blessing, did they? Because their hearts weren't right with Him. And then another thing to consider is that true revival begins with a genuinely repentant heart. That God is actually looking within your heart and my heart, seeking um, what he can see. We know the Lord sees things that we don't see. He, he's able to look within our heart and see our motives and, and desires and intentions. And when he looks at us, what he's looking for is not just an outward, um, you know, not just an outward uh, pretentiousness about us. Uh, he's not just looking for us to draw nigh to him with our lips, like Jesus said of the, of the Pharisees, right? That, that they, they drew nigh to him with their lips, but their heart was far from him. And, and, and God's not just looking at that. He's looking for us to be truly sincere in seeking him. Let's uh, go, if, if you would, uh, to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter number 16. 2 Chronicles 16. And this is one of those... Verses that I think just kind of gets um, overlooked sometimes, and but it, it's just kind of tucked away in a passage of scripture that uh, you may not expect to see a, a statement like this. <clears throat> but Second Chronicles sixteen, verse number nine, it says, "For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth 
to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. In other words, God is actually looking for opportunities to reveal himself in the lives of people who are seeking him. And that's encouraging to me to think about that, that God is looking for an opportunity to bless me if my heart is right with him. But that's what he's looking for is a heart that is right with him. And so true revival then begins with a repentant heart. Uh, secondly, or thirdly, repentance and prayer preceded the promise of victory. Their, their desire to serve God wasn't just because God had done something for them, but rather God was willing to do something for them when their heart was right with him. And, uh, boy, I've talked to people that have said things like that before. You know, well, I, I serve God. I do this because of, uh, you know, God did this for me. So it's like this idea, I'm going to pay him back, <laughs> you know, for what he did. Uh, but that's actually not how it works. In fact, even, you know, you hear people say, boy, I, I, I asked God, you know, if he would just deliver me from this or that, that I told him I would serve him with my whole life. Like, like I'm making a deal with God. That's not how we come to the Lord. We're to come to the Lord in true, sincere repentance. Lord, I need you, and I, I'm hopeless without you, and I'm turning to you because you're worthy. And after that, when we do that, usually the Lord gives victory, and praise the Lord for that, but uh, it's, it, we, we come to him in repentance first. And, uh, and so th th we see that there. And then also... Uh, God does bless the repentant heart of an individual, but he does desire for all his people to seek him earnestly. Look at verse, uh, as back in 1 Samuel 7, uh, as we were reading here, 1 Samuel 7, verse number 3, it says, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, and put away the strange gods and so on. And then look at verse number 5. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah. So in other words, this was a call. The call to repentance. It wasn't just an individual call. It wasn't like saying to certain individuals in Israel, you know, if you would just get right with God. No, this was to the entire nation. Uh, there's a need for national repentance here. And uh, I believe that the Lord does want all of us uh, to turn toward him. And so, uh, some things to consider there. Now, uh, in the few minutes that we have remaining, uh, maybe a couple of things that we could discuss here. Uh, first of all, could it be that God was waiting to see his people grieve over their sin before sending Samuel to give them a path to victory? In other words, for 20 years, that Ark of the Covenant stayed in kerjath Jerem. But nothing happened, and even Samuel was not really speaking to them. I don't know what Samuel was doing those 20 years. In fact, it's fascinating to me when you really think about it. Sometimes we read of people in the Bible, and we've got these long periods or gaps of time where, where we don't really know anything about them or what they were doing. And, and just, just like that, Samuel was, was young and grew up in the, in the tabernacle there with Eli, and then all this happens, and for 20 years... Nothing. We hear nothing until he gathers them all to Mizpah. But it could be that God was, or could it be that God was doing that just because he was waiting. He, they had a prophet in their land, but the prophet wasn't speaking. Why? Because the hearts of the people weren't right before God. 
Could it be that God was waiting to speak until the people were ready to listen? Anybody ever thought of that before? I'll tell you, I've talked to people many times that, um, you know, they, they, they come to church, for instance, and they sit and they listen to preaching and they just say, well, you know, I just don't think God's really speaking to me. Or sometimes you'll hear them say, well, I just don't think I'm really being fed. Well, the question is, are you, it's not necessarily that God's not speaking, but are you listening? You know, are you ready to receive what God wants you to hear? And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll move on from that, but just consider that. Uh, secondly, considering the significance of Samuel requiring all Israel to assemble to Mizpah before he would pray for them, how important is it for all of God's people to seek him for revival? In other words, let me reframe that question a little bit. I think God can use individuals um, to, for instance, stir up the heart of, of a people. Uh, let's say within a church. He can use certain individuals to do that. However, if we really want to see God do something here, let's just bring this to our church. If we want to see God work here, do, do, do you think that maybe there is something that God wants to do here that he's not going to do until all of us are willing to seek him for it? Is that possible? That he's looking for not just a few individuals, but an entire congregation of people that are willing to say, Lord, would you work? Would you do what you want to do? And then, and here's a question that I... I'm really interested to hear your answer to this, all right? Is there still a place in the 21st century for public repentance and confession of sin? I mean, that was something that happened throughout the Bible, right? Where, where people would even come, be come before the congregation, uh, where the congregation as a whole would confess their sin to the Lord, but even certain individuals would come before the congregation and confess to the congregation that they had sinned. Do you think there's any place for that today? We don't see a lot of it because we're private people, aren't we? We don't, we're embarrassed about that. And we even kind of hide behind the fact that we understand that we in order to be forgiven of our sin, we only have to take that to the Lord, right? I mean, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We don't need another man to, to forgive us our sins. We don't have to go through a, a mediator. We don't have to find a, a, a priest to say that our sins are forgiven because our only one person can forgive our sins. It's God. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ, right? So we confess it to him. However, James chapter 5, verse 16, actually says, confess your faults one to another. It doesn't mean you've got to go to someone and say, okay, here are all of the sins that I have committed. Please forgive me. No, we get our forgiveness from God, but here is the idea. When we sin, we are to be accountable for that, even before one another. And it's a, actually a good thing. It doesn't say confess your sin one to another, but it does say confess your faults. 
In other words, it, you know, it's not a, a bad thing to even admit before some other people, maybe some godly friends, hey, this is an area that I struggle. Would you pray for me and would you help me? And if there is sin in our lives, in order to get those things right, not only with God, but also with his people, I think there's a place for even coming before the church and saying, listen, uh, you know, things haven't been right in this area and I'm asking you to forgive me for any wrong that I've done to you, but I also want to I, I want to ask you to help me be accountable for this and, and to, to stay right before God. I believe that there is something significant about public repentance and confession of sins. And then, of course, um, just a, kind of a final note there. Uh, notice that, that Samuel had told Israel that they were to put away the, their gods, their false gods, and serve him only. They were only to serve the Lord, Jehovah, the one true God. And I think it's, it's important to emphasize that because even throughout the history of Israel, there was a common problem where they would serve Jehovah, but they would also have these other idols. And God's made it very clear that he is not compatible with other gods. I mean, that was the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You can't, you can't serve God and idols. And Jesus said that, right? You can't serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other. You'll cleave to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so the call here for Israel was not just, hey, you need to give the Lord his rightful place, but the call was you need to give the Lord his rightful place and get rid of all of the other things that are getting in the way of that. And I think for us today, we need to keep that in mind as well, that uh, we might have some things in our lives that are actually getting in the way of God having his rightful place. And we need to be committed to say, I'm going to serve him only. And I'll be the first to admit to you that I have had at times in my life things that have just gotten in the way. Uh, gods, if you will. Now, they weren't graven images that I would bow down to, but things that consumed my mind, my uh, money, my affections. Things that drew me away. I've had at times uh, relationships when I, before I was married uh, and it, that, that were more important to me than my relationship to God. Or maybe I wouldn't have said they were more important, but, but they certainly distracted me. Um, I've had hobbies at times. Those of you who know me know I'm a gun guy. I like, I like things that go boom. Actually, I, I've, I heard someone say one time, uh, that men, uh, basically, all of our hobbies can be boiled down to one thing, turning money into noise. And I thought, you know, that's actually a pretty, that's a, a pretty good, you know, summary of, uh, of just kind of the typical male, right? Because if it's not guns, it's, for me, it's, it, you know, it's motorcycles or, or uh, you know, four-wheelers or power tools or whatever it is, you know, taking money and turning it into noise. Um, but I've had all these things that have kind of gotten in the way, hunting and fishing and, and, and just things that get in the way. 
that consume my mind and my thoughts and, uh, and my time. And all of those things, even though they may be okay in their rightful place, when they start to get in the way of God having first place, they need to be put away. Those, those God, God does not exist and coexist with other idols in our lives. And so the call was to repent of those things and to serve Him only. He was to have first place and really only place in the hearts and affections of the people of Israel. And certainly those things would be true for us uh, today as well. So for next week, uh, we're going to ask that you read uh, 1 Samuel 8, this is actually not for next week, it's for the following week, because next week we're going to have a missionary uh, that's going to be giving the, the Sunday school lesson. But um, anyway, read through 1 Samuel chapter 8, because we're, we're getting to this point now where uh, Israel begins to ask for a king. This, is, this has all been foundational for the study on the kings. This is where we're getting into that, okay, where, where Israel begins to ask, God, uh, ask Samuel to anoint them uh, a king.